Hey everyone, and welcome to Between the Creations. My name is Laurian Hook, and each week on the podcast, I and my guest discuss various aspects of theology, Christianity, and the Bible. I'm so glad you've decided to join us. Let's get started. Thanks for joining me this week. It's a huge help when you like, rate, and subscribe to Between the Creations wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook for news about upcoming episodes. You can find out more about the podcast, submit topics you'd like me to cover on an episode, or even ask me to speak at your event at laurianhook.com. Well, welcome everyone to this week's episode of Between the Creations. I'm so glad that you have joined us. I'm really, really excited for you to hear today's conversation. I am here with Dr. Michelle Knight. She is a professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and does all things with Joshua and Judges. Her dissertation uh, dealt with Judges, specifically with an earlier chapter dealing with the Song of Deborah and Barak that we see, and we're going to talk about that today. And if nothing that I said just made sense to you, it's fine. We're going to explain it. You'll be in good company. Uh, Michelle has a PhD from Wheaton, and if you don't understand the world of PhD programs, uh, especially certain types of PhD programs, Wheaton's PhD program uh, is very, very difficult to get into. So Michelle has some academic clout here. She she knows what she's talking about. And you studied uh, with Daniel Block, actually, which is, is that, that's correct, right? So uh, Daniel wrote one of, this is just a personal conversation between the two of us at this point now. Um, Daniel wrote, obviously has written a lot, but he wrote a book, um, for the glory of God, I think it's what it's called. And it's on, it's on worship and stuff, which was, it's one of my, it's one of my favorite books on worship, um, coming from a more academic, um, bent. But anyways, thank you, Michelle, for being here and taking time to do this. Do you want to add anything to, about your life or things that you want to know people to know about you? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, I'm really passionate about, um, supporting people in ministry specifically. That's like why I'm at Trinity. Uh, that's why I got the education I did. I read these books and I work in these books because I want people to be able to read these well and tell their people about them and be able to talk about the glory of God and all of this. And so, uh, I'm really pleased to be able to chat with somebody who's like a practitioner as well as somebody who is interested in a lot of these academic things. And so it's fun to, to actually be talking about, you know, the the way that these are going to impact the way that we live and move and have our being. Um, and so uh, that's just really fun for me. I am a mom. Uh, that'll be slightly less relevant to our conversation. And yet, <laughs> but still so uh, awesome. An important part of who I am and what we're doing. Uh, and so I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. I've heard nothing but great things about the podcast. And as I've listened, <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. So thanks for having awesome. me on. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I'm so, so excited. I am an Old Testament person at heart. I, uh, I've loved the Old Testament since I was in Sunday school. And then since I saw the Ten Commandments as like a five-year-old, it's just <laughs> been my jam. Uh, and I, I was one, I'm one of the weirdos that Hebrew was a whole lot easier than Greek for me. And so it just, that. it's yeah. just been my home for a long time. And, and I love it. I love it so much. Um, so right off the bat, uh, I, w- I want to spend the majority of our conversation in, in your doctoral work, talking about okay. the song of Deborah and Barak, um, from, from Judges. Um, but let's, first of all, I want to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork here, and maybe, maybe a fairly good way of doing that is to ask you, what are common misconceptions that you have encountered time and time again, or that when you teach, um, you experience from, from students about the book of Judges, maybe, perhaps, 
maybe specifically even about something with Deborah and Barack. Um, what are misconceptions that you feel like, okay, to start this conversation properly, let's lay this groundwork? Sure. Well, uh, the first thing, it's only barely a misconception. It's more kind of a malpractice. Uh, but frankly, a lot of the times where people have complaints about the books of Joshua and Judges, where people come to them and they just find them so confusing, uh, my experience has been people haven't read them carefully. Uh, or people haven't read them. They're not easy to read uh, for yeah. a host of reasons. They are very difficult to read. Uh, people have very visceral reactions to them. Again, I get it. I totally get it. There are days that I would prefer I don't work in these books anymore. Uh, but I think between that reaction and the fact that there are a lot of popular level books, there's a lot of very popular books written about these uh, that kind of uh, only treat, uh, treat them in a cursory fashion and don't always show their homework about how they came to a particular conclusion or not. We come to these just sort of assuming we know what's there. Uh, and if we're as repelled as some are when they start to read them, we don't actually take the time to read them carefully, understand what we're looking at, uh, and then evaluate it based on what we're actually seeing. Uh, and so I feel like I'm doing a lot of undoing as I teach, just being like, okay, let's all just stop and read what it actually says, because it's not even saying the sort of things we're talking about. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, a general kind of approach to the corpus. Another kind of misconception I think I run into sometimes is when people uh, too quickly graft the national vocabulary uh, of what happens with Israel. Uh, they graft that onto their own understanding of either their nation or other nations. Uh, and so sometimes we draw a little too uh, strong of a line, I would argue, between national entities we see on the page and national entities today. Um, mm, and yeah. so uh, I would say the closest uh, parallel we have is in Joshua, we have Israel, which I would probably call the people of God. And that's really the only parallel I would be comfortable making today to any uh, existing entities walking around on this earth. Uh, and so I think, and obviously some of us are going to have differing opinions about that, but occasionally we make that leap without even thinking through it or evaluating yeah. um, going on. Uh, and we, of course, see that play out in the public square. <laughs> of, so, yes, uh, time and time again. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So, so there's that. And then relevant more specifically to um, the Barack and Deborah interaction and some of the things we see in judges, I think uh, we have a lot of, again, preconceptions about what a judge should do, what the word judge means, um, who all the players in the stories are, just the fact that the book of Judges is called Judges makes everybody think that it's about the judges. Uh, when in fact, the book of Judges is about the Israelite people and the terrible job they do listening to God's instruments and the terrible people they put in charge of themselves. Uh, and so occasionally, just because of the title of the book, we can get really uh, waylaid in our reading uh, of it. And so one of the things I love to do with students is kind of push them to, again, like, look at the way the book is framed. It's indicting the people. Uh, and the judges only insofar as they represent and provide an opportunity to evaluate the people's response. So uh, hopefully that kind of freshens us up for the conversation. There's a lot we've yeah. got to learn and a lot of bad habits we have to break. Absolutely. And not just when we read Judges, but when I think we read the, the entire scriptures and maybe even more so with, with certain Old Testament books that just can feel 
so foreign, so distant from our own experiences, at least with the New Testament, where we kind of can pick up a little bit of, you know, Greek philosophy and we're like, okay, that feels a little similar yeah, sure. to, to kind of some stuff. But the Semitic language and ancient Near Eastern culture, it's so distant from our own that, that yes. you're, you're, I love how you explain we have to unlearn some of our traditional approaches or maybe even some of the stuff that we've heard in sermons for 20 plus years absolutely um, that just isn't actually there and it's it's sometimes to no fault of the people who are trying to share the message it's just we've been taught incorrectly for so long so yeah people people like you and others who are doing this work are are so necessary i think especially in the life of the church um yeah. for for lay leaders and pastors even and staff members to look back to the academy and say okay what are you guys doing what are you guys learning um sure. and i think that there's a lot in judges 4 and 5 that can speak to the church <laughs> in yes. in some ways <laughs> so um one of the things that i i listened uh several a while ago, um, I think almost right when it came out, when you were on Preston Sprinkle's podcast. Sure, yeah. Um, you talked about, and I'm going to kind of grab this because it, it, it stuck with me, and I want to have you talk about it a little bit more. You talked about the prophetic voice of Deborah. Yes. And how that plays out specifically in, in Judges 5. But I think sometimes we forget that Deborah was also a prophet. Uh, yes. And how, so can you just, can you explain that and take that in whatever Absolutely. direction you want to take it? I would love to talk about that for years, but I'll try to um, do so in, in a couple of minutes instead. No, I think we totally miss the, uh, when we're reading along in Judges, especially people in our contemporary context where the issue of what place women uh, should function in the church, like what kind of positions they should hold, that's in the forefront of particularly evangelical people's minds. Uh, when we run across this female leader, that's immediately where our mind goes. And we are almost blinded by anything else about her or the story, except the fact that she's a woman and trying to figure out the implications of that. Especially because the text even talks about uh, you're going to be um, um, uh, the honor won't be yours. It'll be into the hand of a woman that I deliver your enemy. Uh, and so we're all like, okay, this must be about gender. Let's, let's focus on that. Uh, and we totally miss the impact of the fact that Deborah is before she's cucked about judging, before we say that she was judging Israel, before we introduce her in any capacity, she is introduced as a prophet. So mm, I would even yeah. say rather than she was also a prophet, I would say she was a prophet who happened to be in charge of keeping Israel together in that time period. Sure, uh, I would yeah. make that extremely primary to the extent that if you, if you go through and look at everything she does in that chapter, none of it matches a judge. It all matches a prophet. She is prophetic. And in fact, she is the first person since Moses to be called a prophet in the official Hebrew term um, since Moses has died. And so yeah. in for, for the person reading canonically kind of from the beginning and reading in the right order, uh, when they get here, their ears should prick up. This is what Moses promised, that after I'm gone, there's going to be other people that are going to keep revealing to you what God is doing. And so in this minute, as Judges seems to be a, just a period of failure after failure, God sends a prophet to offer clarity, to offer wisdom, to offer guidance, and maybe even to offer correction, which is what we see in Judges 4. Yeah, so it's that absolutely. I would say should change the whole way we read the story. Yeah, and so and even in for those for those of you who who don't know Hebrew, uh, and I'm you guys, this is I'm going out on a leap here on a limb here. I'm <laughs> I'm talking about Hebrew with someone who teaches it and knows it far better than I do. Um, but in Hebrew, at least in sentence structure, when sentences Hebrew will front load its sentences with what's important. 
Uh, it'll it'll put words sometimes in the front that it really wants you to draw your attention to. Um, but I'm wondering if in this narrative, the author of Judges, you you mentioned how how she's referred to as a judge first, and I wonder if the or I'm sorry, as a prophet first. I wonder if the author of Judges is kind of like okay. I'm, I'm going to give you a little piece of important information here, and then I'm going to let the story unfold. Um, yeah. Because it, her, her as prophet almost, um, I wouldn't say it's more important than her as judge, but it it holds an, an extra significance, an extra weight uh, that kind of says, okay, pay attention to what she says, pay attention to how she leads. Yes. Uh, and I, it's it's really important. Yeah, well, and later as she as she speaks to Barack as she kind of interprets the situation she keeps saying things like has not Yahweh commanded uh, and nobody but Moses has said that before mm. and so this is an important moment where she is with extreme authority speaking for Yahweh. So and there are several speeches throughout Judges that really should frame the way we read it. We start out, we have an angel of God in the, in the introduction. We have Deborah. We're going to have another prophet speak up in chapter 6. And then uh, God himself is going to speak to everybody in chapter 10. So at these key moments, God comes down and says, let me let me clarify what's going on here. Uh, and so that is going to shape the way we read Barak's character, the way that we read his response to her. But most importantly, we have an entire song dedicated to her into Judges 5, where she goes back and she replays the entire story and interprets it for us theologically. Like we know how to interpret Judges 4. We don't have to guess. We don't have to read the subtleties. We have the answer because a prophet gave it to us. And that yeah. I think is really, uh, we skip those songs. They're kind of boring into the uh, to the modern Western way of reading event oriented narrative. Uh, we skip over those songs, and it's like the answer to all the questions. Absolutely, yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned it. It helps us know how to read Barack and his response and his and his kind of por- portion of the narrative, which. Um, I think we we sometimes assume wrongly some things about him. So do you want to talk about Barack and kind of sure. his role in the story? And you mentioned you already mentioned how the fact that Deborah is a woman makes us just hone in on that aspect of, of who she is as a person. Right. Um, and sometimes I think we we pull that forward into the Barack narrative maybe a little too much. I don't know. May, I'll let you kind of kind of answer yeah. that. I'm pretty comfortable with that characterization. Uh, as soon as we see uh, a woman step up in leadership and then a man come to her and respond in a less than ideal fashion, uh, we assume that her job is to embarrass him, especially because when she speaks to Brock, she talks about him not receiving honor. Uh, and in our our you know in the way that we think, we we associate honor and shame. And so if he's not getting honor, we all assume that means he is ashamed. To not get honor is to be shamed. And yet, the word here for honor is not the Hebrew word that is the opposite of shame. It's just not. Uh, it means kind of the accolades, uh, the, the person who's going to get credit for the victory, it's not going to be you. It's going to be somebody else. That doesn't imply that he should be embarrassed. It's not like he is uh, in the womanly, uh, he's not like being painted in a feminine manner while everybody else is more masculine. No, he's just not the person who's going to win the battle. In fact, a woman is. Uh, and again, we hear woman, and so we put that within our own gender dynamic kind of categories. But conceptually, it's important for us to remember that this is wartime in ancient Israel. And in ancient Israel, during wartime, anybody who was a man of a particular age fought in the battle. It was like a militia setup where everybody got summoned uh, and everybody went and did that when regionally they were required. 
Well, to be a woman is the narrator's way of saying this person isn't a warrior. And what Deborah just said to him is, listen, I'm happy to go with you, but you're not actually going to get the credit for the victory. And actually, it's going to be a completely different direction in a different setting that somebody is going to receive credit for this. And it's going to be a woman. Uh, That's not humiliating. That's surprising. It's showing us that, wait, God is going to win this victory, not through a warrior, but through a civilian, a housewife. Mm -hmm. And a non-Israelite at that, right? Because we're we're talking about jail. We're not... Yeah, we're not talking about Deborah. We're talking about jail, which exactly. one of my one of my most prized uh, possessions. Well, kind of ironically, I guess not. Not really. Is I have a a cross stitch of the uh, and it's it's got flowers around it and it's sure. so nice and it's the verse that says uh, and then JL took a tent peg and drove it through his temple and so it's like this <laughs> it's like ironic and it's just great. I love that. Um, I want and people one. like people. Yeah, they're fantastic and people like stop and look at it and they're like. Oh, that's that's kind of shocking or whatever, but um, yeah, exactly. It's not. I love that you pointed out that that word for shame there in Hebrew is not the word that we associate with this idea of of being shamed or or feeling shameful yes. or being ashamed. Um, and also, what what role do we think? Um, because it is shocking. First of all, that that. Deborah says it's gonna it's gonna go to a woman, but it's a little it's even more shocking maybe that it's a non-Israelite that that, that will yes. win this battle for them. Exactly. Well, and especially in the unfolding narratives of Judges three through five. So, like in chapter three, the first battle is won by a renowned warrior, uh, Othniel. We've already heard about him. He's already got some clout both from Joshua in the first chapter of Judges. So when he wins, we're like, sure, that's the guy who would win battles. Well, in the next story, wherein it's Ehud, he is slightly less uh, likely, but he's still a warrior, so that makes sense. Uh, but he's a tribute bearer, uh, and he wins against a much stronger enemy with a bunch of alliances who are well-fed while he and his people are having to give all their good food to a foreign power. Uh, and so that's, uh, but his being left-handed kind of makes him a minority, so we're a little surprised by that. But by the time we get to Judges 4, it's like, listen, I don't need to win battles through warriors. I don't need to win battles through even renowned figures. I'm going to use a civilian non-Israelite to make sure it's clear that Israel's army, not Israel and not the army, Israel's army is irrelevant to the way that I win wars. I am the one that brings victory and me alone, which sets us up perfectly for something that continues with Gideon. We we always read Gideon that way when God takes his huge army and dwindles it down to 300 people. It's so that in chapter uh, there... um, trying to remember exactly what verse it is, but I'm just going to skip that. Uh, But he (laughs) says, uh, I don't want you to be able to claim that you did this with your own hand. Uh, And so we see that explicitly in Gideon, but it's already starting here where God's like, I don't even need an army. I'm going to use a housewife just to prove to you that the army has nothing to do to it with it. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, a backwards situation really of, of how ancient, of how any type of militaristic culture wants to achieve things. Right. Yes, Um, absolutely. And it's, it's very much in the same Vain. I mean, this is the story that God tells over and over again, right? I mean, even even 
outside of military conquest and outside of military type language and stories. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking even back to the, back to Genesis when God calls Abram, right? He doesn't call yes. a, a powerful known entity. God doesn't call uh, some type of, of existing powerful nation. God doesn't even call someone at the time who has a whole lot of stuff, it seems like. Yeah. Um, but God is is in the business, it seems like, of... Of, sub, of subverting what we want to be the way things get done. Well, and that's exactly the way that Judges 5 paints it. Uh, they, they paint it as a subversion of expectations. There, when the jail story is retold, we get the jail story. And then in the next verses, we get actually a really terrible couple of verses, frankly. Uh, but it's from the perspective of Sisera's mother and like her attendants, the people that run his household. And they're all daydreaming about how he's going to conquer women on the battlefield and bring them home as, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a less uh, crude term for it, but prisoners of yeah. war, uh, forced wife. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to bring them home. Uh, and so there we have what really happened set alongside their expectations. And then the song, by setting them alongside, shows us how God subverted those expectations and made the vulnerable woman a warrior. And it allows us to say, Israel, if God can win the army through that person that you consider weak, every time you consider yourselves weak, why are you doubting my ability to use you to win battles? Uh, Mm. And the rhetorical force of that is exceptionally strong in their context. And I think when we draw the right parallels, it can be really strong for us as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good word for just for the church, I think, today, even of, of saying, hey, you think that you need power and acclaim and and, you know, I could I could expound on that for a while. But the reality is you you don't like God's going to do what God's going to do. And typically, at least if you read the scriptures and if you look even at, at history, God usually does that through the the weak and through the small and through those who don't have a whole lot going for them at the moment. Um, and and God is not impressed by uh, size of army or greatness or power or wealth or anything like that. And I think that's something that uh, God's selection of particular people uh, in the scriptures and even, like I said, in, in history— uh, I think that's something that it reminds us of those realities uh, that God does not operate uh, the way that we so often wish God operated. <laughs> yes, well, and I think we can we can assume we can kind of get our our you know our worldly ways of addressing problems mixed up with God, and we can start uh, too easily assuming that the way that we can help the you know God uh, in this world is through all of these power structures or through. Um, you know, material means. Uh, the 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 fact is churches need money. And the fact is that churches need a voice and they need a place to be able to speak in, in different situations. So all of these things um, can be a means to an end where God receives glory. But as soon as they become the end rather than the means, uh, that's when people completely lose sight. And the book of Judges is about people assuming that God wasn't enough that he wasn't the place where their salvation would be found. They needed a better king. They needed a better military encounter. They needed a stronger general uh, to the extent that they're going to get to First Samuel and say, we really just need the model the other nations have because Yahweh is just not doing it for us. And by yeah. then, they've completely lost sight of the fact that he was all they ever needed. Um, and we constantly keep chasing things that God does not need. Um, to bring change to a broken world. 
Mm, that's a, that'll preach. That's a good word. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, let's talk specifically about Judges five. We've 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 talked about different verses in it and, and kind of talked around it in, in its structure and stuff. Just as someone who spent several years of your life and continues to spend several years of your life in this text, what are some of your favorite things or, or maybe in what are your favorite things? What is something that when you were studying it, you were like, Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Wasn't expecting that once I went deep in it. Um, or what do you love to point out about judges five? Oh my goodness. I mean, that's so much. I, I think we've already uh, addressed a little bit uh, part of what I think is underappreciated about the song and yet so important. And that's the uh, the kind of parallel between how JL is painted and how the Israelites are painted. So when we meet, uh, when the song begins, it starts out heralding how great God is. It's shouting to all of the nations of the world, like, step back. This is the God who is mighty and does great things. The cosmos shakes under his feet when he, you know, stomps out in battle. Beware. But then it shifts really starkly in verse 6. And it's like, except that during this, uh, this time period, his people were completely vulnerable. So it describes them as people, when we hear about travelers or villagers, depending on your translation, that's an ancient way of saying people who had no secure dwellings. They were in campsites. They were um, in, in, not in the strong, fortified uh, encampments that we have in Canaanite cities, or specifically, JL, I'm sorry, Sisera's mother is painted as being in this more fortified place that has windows and lattice. Uh, and so we get this distinction between those who are safe and or perceived to be safe and those that aren't. And then the only other thing we learn about Israel in these early verses is that they don't have any weapons. Like they have no weapons. Uh, I'm looking at, let's see, verse eight. Was there a shield or a spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? And then we also hear that the highways are abandoned. They're in such a state of pain and suffering and military occupation uh, that they can't even safely do their jobs. Um, and it reminds us of Gideon kind of, you know, hiding out in the caves while he's doing his work because Midian is just tearing their society apart. That's the picture we have here. And so when we start out um, recognizing that Israel is vulnerable, they're vulnerable. And this is a story about how God lifts up the vulnerable and uses them to do great things. We can then better understand how this really violent uh, experience of Jael with Sisera fits in to God's kind of unfolding revelation. This is him saying somebody vulnerable is actually going to do something that a conqueror normally does. The person who should have been conquered was the conqueror. Uh, in this situation, God is the God who can completely uh, flip the script. Uh, he is the God who can um, make the lowly mighty. Uh, and that is the story we hear of him in the Magnificat, uh, in, in Matthew, when Mary sings about what he's done. Uh, when, I mean, over and over, Hannah in Samuel is going to say the same thing. This is the God uh, who gives power to the lowly. Uh, and humbles the proud. And we see that reversal all throughout the song. Now, what's interesting, though, is not only do we get that revelation of God in this, in this unique kind of um, reversal that he can um, introduce to a situation, we also get this kind of mixed picture of Israel that occasionally I think we miss. We, we label this in our brains a victory song, and then we're like, it's all good news, and we kind of skim. 
But we miss that in the middle, there's a bunch of sections. Like if you look at verses 13 and following, we start out by talking about how awesome some of the tribes were when they came to battle. And then he goes through, uh, she goes through and indicts all of the tribes that didn't come. Yeah. In fact, there's one settlement in, in verse, let's see, in verse 23 that gets cursed, like outwardly cursed uh, for not coming when God called them to battle. And so what this song does is uniquely brings together, on the one hand, God has revealed that he can do anything he wants with anyone. And on the other hand, why in the world did you not come to battle? So the song kind of confronts the people with, you can recognize this, that God lifts up the lowly and uses them for great things. And yet on the other hand, you weren't willing to follow that God to battle. Uh, and so this is, it's such a powerful statement to them of how our practice does not always match our theology. And in mm. those moments, it's, it takes a prophetic voice to say, if you profess this, you yeah. must change your action. And that's how Deborah's song functions. Yeah. And within the book, when we see Gideon in the next chapter say, what has God done for us recently? As readers, we're supposed to say, well, he did really mighty things recently. How did you miss that? It yeah. seems like with some of those tribes, he totally missed that God was just as mighty as he had been in the Exodus. Um, yeah. And so I think drawing those two messages together and not uh, missing one or the other, I think, is the unique function of the song and one that we can miss if we don't read too carefully. Yeah. Wow. Thanks so much. That was, that was all fantastic. Um, I, I think I, so I, one of the notes that I wrote down prior to talking with you, I don't know if I read this in, in something you wrote or listen and listened to another podcast you were on or something. I, I heard, I think, I think it was you or someone, I don't know, said that the, one of the main themes of Judges 5 is don't be afraid. Yes. Don't be afraid. Um, because God can do and does do these mighty things in spite of where you feel you are lacking as an individual, as a people group, as a nation, whatever it is, uh, God, God is going to do what God needs to do. Yes. And, um, so you, for, I think there, and I think the, the don't be afraid is maybe multi-layered there. It, it's don't be afraid because your enemies are at your doorstep. It's right. don't be afraid because God, God's still going to move in spite of what you perceive to be your weakness. And then also maybe three, don't be afraid because uh, fear might potentially stop you from uh, moving forward in what God has called you to do. Uh, yes, and I, I think that we see all three of those kind of layered in there, the, those three ways of understanding this message of don't be afraid in not only the story of Deborah, but maybe even in all, all of the judges' own stories. Well, especially coming on the heels of Joshua. Joshua's uh, repeated refrain is be strong and courageous because if, and I would translate that resilient probably, but um, you need to stick to what I have told you because fear is going to be that which undoes your devotion to me. Uh, and we see that in our own lives. So much of the sin uh, that I see in my own life is ultimately me being afraid of particular things. It ultimately is me not having faith that God could handle that in the way that he has told me uh, that he can handle it. And so we see Joshua say, be strong and courageous. And Judges is like, look what happened when you were fearful instead of being strong and courageous as Joshua had charged you to be. So I think you're yeah. totally right. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking speaking of Joshua, how, how do you think... Uh, because I think one of the things that I that I, I talk about with about with people specifically in the church is the importance of reading 
large passages of narr- of narrative, especially in the Old Testament, as to, like don't like we I think sometimes, especially in the West, we've we've really pushed this idea of devotional Bible reading, which I'm all here for. Yes, spiritual formation, I'm I'm on yeah. board. Let's do it. Let's read for for that. Let's do our Lectio Divina. Let's do all of these things, right? But I also I also really try to encourage people, especially with Old Testament narrative, sit down and read a large portion of it at a given yes. time. So how do you think uh, the relationship of going from Joshua into Judges, like within the, the larger narrative of Scripture, um, what do we gain from, hey, from remembering, hey, Joshua has preceded all of this, and this is where we are historically now. How do you frame that with students? Yeah. What's important for us to pick up on and remember there? That's super helpful. Yeah, I'm. the connection between Joshua and Judges, I would argue, is imperative for reading either of the books accurately uh, and reading them responsibly. Uh, one of the reasons we have to do so is because Judges 1 and 2 picks up on and directly quotes several portions of Joshua. That's the, the author of Judges is straight up saying, hey, remember the story you know, let me add to it. That's a cue to us that we are not going to hear it properly unless we get that backstory. And so we are already um, kind of positioned to to hear Joshua in the background of what's happening in Judges, not only historically, but thematically and theologically. Uh, And as you're saying, uh, reading those two things together really does help. Now, uh, perhaps the best theme to to, to draw those two together is to point out the way that Judge, uh, Joshua ends. Uh, Joshua ends with, um, with that leader standing up at the end of his life and saying, listen, in the days ahead, uh, things are going to get very difficult if you do any of these three things. If you first stop kicking out the nations from the land, uh, not because we hate them, not because they're terrible, but because uh, their religious influence is problematic. So we really need you to make sure that that religious influence isn't a part uh, of your settlement here in the land. Uh, and we can talk more about uh, that dynamic if we would like to a little bit. Yeah, later. I think I think I we'll have to do another episode on that dynamic. <laughs> I, that's a whole that's a whole lot longer than the time we yes. had left. But I would love to talk about that with you. So we'll we'll talk offline another about time. getting that lined up. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, so uh, that's so first point. Is you drive out everyone from the, the nations. The second yeah. point is um, do not intermarry with them. Again, not because they're terrible people, uh, but because their religious influence is going to be a problem. And then the third thing uh, is don't worship their gods. What Judges 1 and 2 does is walks us through step-by-step step those three failures. In fact, in the last <laughs> couple of chapters, or the last couple of verses of the introduction, uh, 3, 5 through 6, we basically have a list. What three things did they do? Those three things. And yeah. so the background of Judges is the failure to do what Joshua said to do. And Joshua says, okay, if you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. And it's basically a summary of Judges. Yeah. To the extent where he says uh, these people are going to be a snare to you. Well, that's exactly what God says in the introduction to Judges. Well, I'm going to leave these people as a snare. And then in the Gideon narrative, when Gideon erects uh, a golden ephod and everybody uh, worships it, he's, uh, the narrator says, and then it was a snare. So we have the realization of what was warned in Joshua, what was proclaimed by God at the beginning of Judges, and then is realized in the middle of Judges. So by yeah. the time we get to that passage in Judges 8, we know, okay, Everything that Joshua warned has happened. What now? And for the rest of the book, everything just falls apart. Yeah, and it's I, I 
not specifically with Joshua and Judges, more with more with Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. I I try to help people understand like the covenantal ramifications of of breaking the covenant. Yeah. Like there are there are severe ramifications of of, of this. One of them is being overtaken by by enemies, being overtaken by um, foreign invaders, which we see in jo- in Joshua. We see in Judges. Uh, they're dealing with this threat of foreign. Um, being overthrown by these foreign powers, of being overtaken, of being occupied again, of all these things. And that is a, I mean, it's it's stipulated in the covenantal agreement. God says, yes. hey, I'm, I'm giving you all of this. Don't do, you know, like you just listed, don't do these types of things. If you do these types of things, uh, one of the first signs that things are going very poorly is that you will be overtaken and you will be um, oppressed by other nations. Ultimately, yes. God's spirit will leave the temple, which we haven't, or we haven't quite got, or the tabernacle, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but, uh, it's, it's being like, they're pushing it over and yeah. over and over again. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that I, you, I think it was so great how you said that Joshua sets up judges so that you don't, you don't come to judges and read it in a vacuum. You don't come to judges and right. read it or, or any portion of scripture for that matter, but you don't come to judges and read it and be like, well, why is God upset all of a sudden? These people just had a little hiccup here. And it's it's like, no, because everything has been laid out for them. Absolutely. Everything has been stipulated. Yeah. So that's that's really important. That's a great way of saying all of that. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So last last couple questions here. I try to ask this of, of all my, my Bible scholars who are on the podcast. And uh, it's really interesting to see how they answer this question. So if you could help people like it like a a lay member of your church who's not going to do a seminary who's not going to get a phd who just you know that's not their calling in life um but what are some things that you think lay christian you know members of churches need to know or understand better about the bible rather than just kind of taking it for what we've always been told it was what is and it can be one thing it can be three things it doesn't matter um, but if you could get just what I call, you know, just average church goer, you know, person who's in Bible study and involved, but isn't going to do a PhD in Old Testament. If you could be like, if we could grasp these things better, it would help us understand the scriptures in a, in a better way. Um, do you have any, do you have anything that jumps off the, uh, off the page sure. to you for that? Well, as a Old Testament narrative gal, I'll kind of uh, live in that vein I think that we have really lost the ability, and part of this has to do with the way that kind of higher ed works these days and a lot of other things favoring STEM, 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 what's the word I want, subjects and things like Mm -hmm. that, Uh, kind of a literary reading, reading very carefully uh, and with literary observations is actually something that we're not training students uh, at any age to do as well as we once did. Uh, And we start to see the impact of that in our churches when people are having more and more trouble um, kind of taking the cues that the Bible gives them uh, as they are reading their Bible. And so especially with Old Testament narratives, um, we call them historical books in our English Bibles, which is totally cool. I mean, it's giving us a story. It's telling us about history. And so that's an appropriate title. Um, But we expect to read it like a newspaper. Uh, It's going to list a bunch of things that happened, and now we know the history of Israel. And occasionally when we call them the historical books, uh, we train ourselves to think, my job here is to learn what God did, period. 
Uh, and we forget that history writing, and especially this like highly um, kind of carefully shaped account, uh, is more than just a history book. It's also, it's a narrative with a lot of literary artistry that is pushing us to interpret that history in a special way. That doesn't make it any less historical. That makes it history that's written by a God who wants to know us and wants us to know him. And so he says, I'm not just giving you the facts. I'm giving you my interpretation of the facts. And so as I tell the story, I'm going to highlight certain things. And I'm going to use kind of literary patterns and different ways of writing to help you notice that. And so if we are reading either devotionally in very short chunks, which has such power, but can't be the only way we read. Yeah. Uh, if we are reading in this capacity where we're reading one or two verses at a time and trying to think what those particular words can mean, we miss the fact that there is a story being told by a storyteller who's building suspense, who is uh, kind of uh, disappointing us on purpose so that we can be excited later on, who is painting a character to sound very much like that character we just met, who's using the same word over and over and over again in two or three chapters to make sure we don't miss how important that theme is. We miss those elements because we have forgotten how to read stories well, either outside of the Bible or in the Bible. And we miss a whole layer of revelation from God because we're only asking the question, what happened? We're not asking the question of why or what is God trying to teach me about what happened? And it's often at those that layer of watching the way the story unfolds that we really can hear, uh, this is how we should interpret what happened. And this is the application that I need to consider in my own life. Uh, and so learning to read the Old Testament like a story again, uh, especially those parts that are narrative, I think is something that's crucial for our generation, as you already mentioned. And that involves sitting down and reading it like a novel um, yeah. every now and again. Not only, but at least every now and again so we can hear those elements. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing that in that same vein that I, I have to remind people a lot is the writers of the Old Testament were not as concerned with certain aspects of storytelling like we are today. Like it's not Correct. it's not a news report in the way that they're concerned with, okay, there were actually literally 18 people there and we right. counted every single one and things like that. And I, I have to remind people a lot of times, okay, ancient Near Eastern writers, Old Testament writers – they weren't as concerned with certain forms of detail as we Correct. are. Correct. Um, yes. And so you have to kind of learn the learn the quote unquote language of how they they did their storytelling and how they wrote their narrative and um and and also to the point of judges of judges five why the the poetry why the songs are so important as well. Yes. Um, don't no, don't skip those. Right. <laughs> yeah, because we even as I say, sit down and read it like a novel. We're expecting to read it like the sort of novels that we write. Uh, yeah. And while some of those things work, plot structure is you know fairly similar. Characterization, a lot of those techniques kind of carry over. Uh, you are right that this is a genre that is foreign to most of us, and that genre has its own rules uh, and it has its own vocabulary, and we have to know a little bit about how that vocabulary works. And I mean, if we study ancient Near Eastern writing, that gives us a leg up. But even for the lay person who has nothing but their Bible in front of them, if they read Joshua and Judges over and over again for years of their life, even that is going to help them start to get used to that genre and listen to it. It's on their own terms. So folks, I just want you to hear, even if you don't have a seminary education, even if you don't know how everything worked in the ancient Near East, 
God is still going to teach you about that if you are ready to let him shape your perceptions of what you're reading rather than assuming you know how it should be read. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a good word. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so last question, do you have any upcoming projects, upcoming work, uh, things that are in queue to be published in the next year or two that you want to share and talk about for the audience real quick? Yeah, I'll just mention I'm writing I'm writing a textbook on the historical book. So if anybody uh, you know happens to be teaching and that's interesting, I would love to you know share that. But that the reason I'm excited about that project is uh, it's reading these books as Christian scripture. So the emphasis here is specifically as Christians, not just academics or anything like that, but as Christian readers who have the New Testament, who have church history to speak into these matters. How do we read these? So I'm working on that on the historical books uh, for Baker, and then I have two commentaries that'll be out in the next decade, one on Joshua. uh, And that specifically is going to look at issues of contemporary uh, questions of justice and things like that. So that'll be kind of a a really timely project. Uh, And then I am working on a judge's commentary as well. Uh, One of these days, I'll you know, my dissertation will be published also. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I love that you're like, within the decade, this commentary will be done, which is how commentaries <laughs> get written for the, if, if you're like, wow, that seems like a really long project. It is. Commentary it is. writing is not anything that people enter into lightly or just it's like, <laughs> yeah, I think I'll do one of those, especially on a book the size and length of, of a Joshua or a Judges. Um, yeah. Maybe if you're going to do Ruth, you could get it done in half a decade. I don't know. But um but yeah, so, well, thank you, Michelle, so much for your time and just for your expertise and your, your joy of, of sharing all this was just really contagious. So I, I'm really thankful uh, for you. Oh, thank you. And yeah. I really am grateful for, uh, for being on the podcast. So thank you for having yeah. me. Yeah. And everyone, thank you for listening. Make sure that you have subscribed and rated and reviewed the podcast. That's the best way that you can help us out. And thanks so much for listening. And we will be back next week. 